When America first moved to obtain overseas territory, it went from being a regional power to one whose presence might be projected anywhere in the world. This transition came rather suddenly in 1898, and it came via a war with an unlikely foe, Spain. The Spanish-American War might never have happened without the active efforts of many individuals, but happen it did, and that ramp up to war, along with the effort to stop it, has lessons for us. Evan Thomas is both historian and journalist. He employs both backgrounds in his current book, which seeks to examine what led to the war with Spain. It's entitled, The War Lovers, Roosevelt, Lodge, Hearst, and the Rush to Empire, 1898. Evan Thomas has been editor-at-large at Newsweek since 2006. He's the magazine's lead writer on major news events and has written over 100 cover stories. Two of his previous books, Sea of Thunder and John Paul Jones, were New York Times bestsellers. Mr. Thomas has won numerous awards for his work, and we're privileged to have him join us to discuss the remarkable individuals and events that marked America's emergence onto the world stage. Evan Thomas, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, in the 1890s, there were some in America who thought going to war was uh, something the nation just needed to do. Uh, people, I think, would be surprised to know there were hotheads who wanted to see the U.S. fight Great Britain, even though the British Navy was vastly larger. Um, Americans did not then and do not today want to think of ourselves as a colonial power. But as you note in the title, there was a rush to empire. Who wanted to start building this empire? Well, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, familiar certainly to your listeners, was the most uh, dramatic and loudest voice. He was only Assistant Secretary of the Navy, which doesn't seem like all that big a job. But he sure used it as a platform, and he, he gave speeches. He wasn't shy about it. He gave speeches in 1897 uh, saying that the great, all the great races have known what he called the supreme triumphs of war, that no triumph of peace is so great as the, as the triumph of war. He felt that America was growing soft, uh, that we were, as he put it, over-civilized, and that we needed to recapture our conquering spirit uh, he had an expression to find the wolf rising in the heart uh, to, to, to show the same spirit we, should, we showed conquering the West. And uh, he had a lot of people listening to him. He was a charismatic figure, and, and uh, uh, there were a lot of people who had this sort of restless feeling that America should become a great power by looking outward, that we needed to not... They didn't want to be, they didn't want to be Britain or Germany or France having colonies quite the same way because they thought that was imperialist and that was not a word that they liked. But they certainly believed that America should be a great naval power and rival Great Britain. And uh, uh, Roosevelt's friend, Henry Cabot Lodge, was the chief articulator of this vision in the U.S. Senate. And then there was the newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, uh, who was a very colorful, uh, lively, fun-to-write-about figure, uh, who knew you know, that war sells newspapers. Uh, uh, Hearst had specialized what we now take for granted, sensational journalism. Uh, in those days, uh, it was known as crime and underwear journalism, <laughs> sex, sex and violence, which sell, sold then and sold today. And Hearst helped specialize this. Well, of course, the great, greatest conflicts, journalists love conflict, and the greatest conflict is, is war. And so Hearst did everything he possibly could to get us into this war. And so I wrote about those three men uh, principally as my war hawks, and then I had a couple of doves on the other side. Yeah, I was quite intrigued that, uh, based on you know my readings of history, that uh, Hearst has always been put foremost as the guy who almost almost single-handedly made the war happen. That famous line, I guess, Orson Welles recycled in Citizen yeah. Kane about you supply the pictures, I'll supply the war. But uh, you, you sort of put him, it looks like, in second place after Roosevelt. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Hearst had an ego the size of uh, the Washington Monument, so he always claimed credit for the war, but he was a factor, but certainly not the whole all factor. I think historians who look at this realize there were a lot of reasons why we why we went to war. Hearst was the kind of the noisiest, uh, but probably not the the lead factor. No, no newspaper publisher, despite their ego, can be. But it's it's as if the country was ready for war. You know. Uh, countries are from time to time. Young men, this is an eternal thing. It's not particularly American. It's many societies all through history. Young men feel this need to prove themselves in combat. And there are times when, when there are older men who want to give them that chance for a variety of reasons. And 1898 uh, was, was one of those times. Well, Hearst and, and Roosevelt are certainly well known. A little bit, uh, I think, Less familiar to the general public is Henry Cabot Lodge, but he certainly had a role to play. Uh, tell us a bit about him. Well, Lodge, uh, who I think is, as you say, pretty much forgotten. Think of a really cold, chilly uh, <laughs> Boston Brahmin. You know, and Lodge really was a character. One, in fact, his political opponents would pretend to shiver when he walked by. <laughs> uh, but Roosevelt saw in him something else—a more tender person and a uh, more sensitive person. And he certainly was, Lodge was a, was a visionary. He, he laid out a vision which we now take for granted about American power. You know, we now accept that we have a great Navy and uh, we're this dominant global power. Well, the first person to really articulate this was Henry Cabot Lodge. Well, not everybody wanted us to, to head toward war. There's a couple other players uh, in the book that uh, resisted the call. You wrote about them at length, that Thomas Brackett Reed, Speaker of the House, and the writer-educator William James. And, and Reed, I thought, I think I'm not alone in this, uh, I found especially interesting. Most people aren't too familiar with him, but you tell a very fascinating story about him being a giant of his time and um, very influential. Well, Reed, I think, has been pretty much forgotten by history and, and uh, because he was on the wrong side of history in this sense. He was, in his day, known as Czar Reed because he was the considered to be the most powerful person in Washington after the, after the president, sometimes the head of the president. He was a dominating, uh, larger-than-life figure. He was very good friends with both Roosevelt and Lodge. They were the kind of the smart guys in town. But Reed just did not get this war fever. He did not understand why the country wanted to go racing off to war to conquer other countries when we had a lot of problems at home to deal with. So Reed was weirdly, uh, for his time, immune from war fever, tried to stop it, got rolled by it. In fact, uh, you know, you think Congress is screwed up now. In 1898, when they were passing the war resolution, a fistfight broke out on the floor of the House. People were throwing books at each other. They had to, Sergeant at Arms had to use a silver mace to break up the fight. And Roosevelt, excuse me, uh, uh, Reed saw this happening around him, was really kind of demoralized by it, left Congress, and died, I think, really of a broken heart a couple of years later. So he's a, to me, tragic figure lost to history. He was a funny guy. He, he said uh, the definition of a statesman is a successful politician who is dead. Uh, he had that kind of acerbic wit, which uh, scared people in a way, uh, made him a, a, a big figure, but also uh, was a little bit off-putting. And so when people turned on him, they really turned on him. I just want to interject that people, people may, may want to buy your book just for some of the Reed quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Reed was... Uh, was you know, he was clever, but you know the way it is with clever people. It's funny unless it's aimed at you. And uh, uh, he was, Reed was maybe a little bit too clever for his own good. 
Well, the man in the middle of all this, President William McKinley, was sort of uh, ambivalent about going to war or, or sort of drug his feet. I didn't realize until I read your book, but he actually was an eyewitness to the carnage at Antietam, and that made him reluctant to, uh, to engage the country in conflict, and yet his, his hand was still forced. Well, I mean, I, it's significant that among the top policymakers, he was the only guy who'd actually seen war. I mean, this is, this is a theme that repeats itself. Often it's the old guys who have not seen war who are eager to send young men to, into war. Uh, McKinley, as you say, had been at Antietam in the Civil War on the bloodiest single day, I think, in U.S. combat history. Uh, I think 5,000 men died at Antietam in, the, in one morning. In any case, McKinley was there, and when he was arguing with Roosevelt, Roosevelt pushing to go to war, McKinley said, I've been to it. I was at Antietam. I saw the dead stacked up at Antietam. So he had experienced combat, and that had made him not too eager to rush back into it. Well... Public opinion gets swayed when the U.S. sends a battleship down to Havana Harbor, the Maine. It blows up, and, uh, and uh, Hearst and others uh, cry foul. Well, the, uh, the expression of the, the day was, to hell with Spain, remember the Maine. <laughs> and uh, it, 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 it was an accident. The Hearst, the, uh, uh, which, uh, an accident that Hearst turned into a provocation, uh, uh, the Maine was down there showing the flag, and it blew up on a February night in 1898. And immediately, Hearst started running these diagrams showing how a dastardly Spanish plot, a mine or a torpedo, beneath the Hearst had blown, uh, beneath the uh, the Maine had blown it up. Well, we now know from later naval investigations that it was actually a faulty uh, des- a design flaw. The coal bunker was put too close to the powder magazine, and there was a coal fire. And it blew the ship up, but that was an inconvenient fact that was uh, pretty much brushed under the rug in 1898 because the country wanted a provocation. And uh, it's interesting to me that Teddy Roosevelt, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, had a letter on his desk that morning basically pointing to this design flaw to these coal fires. That letter never saw the light of day. Instead, a court of naval inquiry found out that it had, in fact, been a Spanish torpedo, a Spanish mine. It, It wasn't. But that was, uh, we needed a provocation, as sometimes countries do, to go to war, and that was convenient. Well, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, in your book, emerges as kind of a, not the guy we think of in the history books. He yeah. was really quite ecstatic to go off to war. He, uh, he was proud of the fact that he went off and killed himself a Spaniard, and in many respects, just doesn't seem like this guy we revere from Mount Rushmore. Well, here's the thing. I do revere him. I, I revere I think he belongs on Mount Rushmore. I think he was a truly great president and the progressive era and all that. Uh, But he's like a lot of great men. He's a complicated guy. and Like a lot of great men, he had a darker side. And and I'm I'm interested in that darker side, that what made him, compelled him uh, to go to war. It's almost as if he got it out of his system. You know, you mentioned he shot a Spaniard and he bragged about it to Henry Cabot Lodge. It's almost as if the fever broke. When he was president, he was not very bellicose. He talked about, he said, talk softly but carry a big stick. But he never used that stick. He did not get America into a war in his time. And then when he was out of office, it's as if the fever returned. As the First World War was breaking out, Roosevelt, then a 57-year-old, kind of ailing old guy, goes to President Wilson and and offers to raise a division of American soldiers to fight in France under his command. And and Wilson's not going to do that. Uh, Wilson is, doesn't want to make a martyr or a hero out of Roosevelt. is a political rival, and so he, he says no. And as Roosevelt is leaving the White House, 
Roosevelt turns to Wilson's top aide, Colonel House, and he says, oh, he doesn't, the president doesn't understand. I'm just asking for the opportunity to die. And Colonel House turns to Roosevelt and looks at him and says, House is sick of Roosevelt by now, and he says, oh, did you make that quite clear to the president? <laughs> Such a great line. <laughs> Roosevelt's very famous for joining this group, this volunteer group, the Rough Riders. But uh, your book really paints a very vivid picture of what kind of an odd bunch this group was. Well, it was. It was a mixture of uh, hardened cowboys, uh, real, real rough riders from the West, and a generous sprinkling of, of society boys, uh, clubmen from the East, uh, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, often effete uh, snob types. And Roosevelt loved to bring together his... These were his two worlds. He was from the rich boy world, but he had gone West to hunt big game. And he loved the idea of bringing those worlds together. And in fact, they did fight pretty well. The rich snobs uh, did uh, pretty well. They were not. They behaved themselves. They, they, uh, they, they were brave, and they, they did fight, fight well. And they were able to get along together. And only somebody like Roosevelt, I think, could pull something like the Rough Riders off. But he did. And they were a storied band. They did fight well at San Juan Hill. They sustained 15% casualties. Uh, they fought bravely. Uh, and it was a kind of thing that I don't, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine, except in the movies. It's, it's uh, you know, you put together these people together, and they perform this, uh, they had this, what they, their, their cry was, rough, tough, were the stuff, uh, uh, you know, we, we just want to fight, uh, whoopee. Uh, you know, they were, they were sort of preppy cowboys, if you will, uh, and, they did, and, they, and they did fight well, and they, they make very, for, for very colorful storytelling. We're speaking with author Evan Thomas about his most fascinating book, The War Lovers, Roosevelt Lodge Hearst and the Rush to Empire, 1898. Certainly, if, if, if Teddy Roosevelt and William Randolph Hearst are on the forefront of the move to get into war, it's, it's intriguing that as the war started in Cuba, Hearst also tried to go down there and uh, stick his nose in things and see what was going on, but it, it didn't work out quite so well for him. Well, Hearst, I mean... You know, how many publishers would do this? He went himself. He brought uh, uh, 20 correspondents, uh, 12 yachts that he chartered or ships, and a hot air, giant hot air balloon. Uh, He brought a printing press to Cuba, uh, the first ever motion picture camera to take pictures of a war, and and himself. And he tried to find the battle. He sort of went in the wrong direction. Uh, You know, he had a pistol in his belt. Uh, the next three days later, he's on his yacht, and the naval he's following the naval battle off Santiago. Not a, not an inconsiderable battle. A dozen ships on each side, and one of the Spanish ships is sunk, and the sailors swim to shore. And so Hurst goes in after him, uh, pulls his pistol out, and captures <laughs> as his own personal prisoners of war 29 Spanish sailors, and he makes them give a cheer for George Washington and Old Glory, and then turns them over to the U.S. Navy and gets a receipt which he later puts up on his wall. I mean, how many newspaper publishers today would do something like that? It's just, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it was an amazing time. Well, in The War Lovers, you show that uh, while those who called for war swore we were trying to aid the native population and throw the, off the yoke of, impression, of oppression, and there certainly was an element of truth to that, once we got into the conflict and America gained control, it was not so keen to see self-rule for the Cubans or the Filipinos. It wasn't. I mean, this is a more racist or racialist time, and and we were shocked when we got down there to find that the Cuban rebel army was half black and that they had black officers, something that would be routine today. But in the America of the 1890s, particularly the southern officers, 
was was not good. And so we didn't treat that Cuban rebel army very well. In fact, we excluded them from the surrender ceremony, which was, in retrospect, or even, I think at the time, nuts, because we, we basically disrespected the people that we were trying to save. And they have not forgotten this down in Cuba. I was down there a few years ago, and there's still billboards on the road outside of Santiago talking about how we had, in effect, dissed the, uh, the Cubans. Castro, Fidel Castro, uh, Cuba's uh, leader, when he came out of the hills in his revolution in 1959, he said, uh, this time, he said, the rebels will go in the city. He's referring to the American decision to exclude the rebels from Santiago in 1898. So there are long memories down there. And even though we did liberate Cuba, uh, we didn't give them entirely self-rule. We, we reserved the right to intervene. And to their prideful natures, and I think this would be true of any country, they resented this and, and really have not forgotten it. Mr. Thomas, you said you thought about the Spanish-American War and war fever as you wrote about the war with Iraq for Newsweek. And there certainly are some parallels, war hawks with a broader agenda seeking to move public opinion through a press that disseminated some inflammatory but sometimes dubious tales of evil doing by the country we were preparing to attack. Do you think such manipulations are just something that's inevitable or is, is part of the effort of this book to advise people to perhaps be more skeptical of those who might lead us to war? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I do think it's inevitable because history changes, but human nature doesn't. I don't want to overdo these parallels because history never exactly repeats itself, and, and the Spanish War was not the Iraq War or vice versa. Nonetheless, there are some lessons, but here's the thing. I don't really think that, you know, much as I like to get on my high horse here and, you know, preach or pontificate some lesson, I, people don't. People don't learn these lessons, you know. They, history does repeat itself in that sense. That, uh, people go to war for a lot of reasons, and sometimes good reasons, and sometimes not so good reasons. And it's as if it's a lesson that we never learn, really, because gen every generation has to experience it anew. I, I hate to be too fatalistic about this, but I just think that that that's the way it is. That that there is something about the allure of war that, well, not everywhere. I suppose in Europe, you know, after World War One and World War Two, they they really don't want to fight anymore. But history tells us that. This, the war fever's return. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to ask a kind of theoretical question. I'm, I'm not a historian. I haven't taken a history class uh, since 11th grade, but I, I, I love books like yours. Um, I know there's a traditional de debate in the study of history as to whether it's really about individuals or it's about forces. Yeah. In, the, in The War Lovers, you chose to focus on five men. And, and I guess a question I just want to throw out there is, in your opinion, if Roosevelt, Hearst, and Lodge had all dropped dead, say, of typhoid fever in 1897, yeah. do you think there still would have been a war? Well, that's a great question, and the, it's the eternal question. There's a debate, as you say, between the great man theory of history, which is largely discredited, and, and, and I think more modern scholars look at these broader forces. And I, I think the modern scholars probably have the better of it, but I'm drawn to writing about people, because I think we understand history better through people. And these figures, now maybe these events would have happened without them, but they sure played a role in what did happen. And they make for compelling storytelling. And I think it's a way to get people to read history. If I'd written a piece about or a book about the impersonal forces that created the Spanish-American War, we wouldn't be talking about it because nobody would read it. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that, that, that people do matter. They may not be decisive, but they matter. And these were larger-than-life figures who did matter, and so I wrote about them, and, and, you know, both to tell a story, but also because I think there are larger meanings and larger truths here. 
Well, final question. In 1898, American business interests apparently were quite anti-war. They thought war would be terrible for business. Uh, the war lovers had to work very hard to sell them on the idea of a conflict. Today, of course, there's something of a, I guess you'd call it a pro-war lobby out there, as first outlined by Dwight Eisenhower with his farewell yeah. address, yep. military industry. Um, I know you're going to be looking at Eisenhower in, 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 your, in your future writings. Uh, is this a genie we can ever get back in the bottle? I don't think so. I mean, there is. I don't want to overdo this either. The, uh, although Eisenhower, as you say, may gave a famous speech about the military-industrial complex in 1961, and there is there are always economic motives. I mean, if we look at the Middle East, certainly oil uh, is a pretty powerful motivator on American policy in the Middle East, and we can argue whether that's good or bad. But I think it's a fact of life that that oil does drive our our policy, and so economics are always a piece of it. But they're not the only piece. And it's, war is always a complex web of psychology, economic necessity, strategic necessity, and various combinations. And with this wild card of human nature, our leaders, some of us who are eager to get us into war, and some of them ain't. Well, it's a, it's a great read. The War Lovers, Roosevelt, Lodge, Hearst, and the Rush to Empire, 1898. I think a lot of people are going to want to put it in their bag uh, for summer reading. We've been speaking with author Evan Thomas, and, and we want to thank you very much for, for talking to us. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it.